If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm 58. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may Your Word before us be our rule. May Your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may Your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So here we are at Psalm 58 in our summer series, seeing all of life as worship through the Psalms. I think it goes without saying that there is a longing for justice in a world of injustice. Now and then, yesterday and today, I want to take us back to the year 1776. Some of us, maybe all of us, are familiar with these words. When in the course of human events, that document continues, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Familiar words, but here's some words from that same document that may not be so familiar. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And if you continue to read the Declaration of Independence, you'll see that among these facts are, quote, he, that is the king of Great Britain, he has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount of payment of their salaries. So in the early days of this country, people were longing for justice. And they believed that there was injustice that needed to be dealt with. Well, let's go back a little further from 1776. Let, let's go back to the first few decades somewhere probably around A.D. 20, A.D. 30. Let's think about Jesus and the people of his day attempting to live well before God in a world of injustice. Remember, Jesus himself faced injustice. All we have to think about is the trial before the high priest, before the, the council, the Sanhedrin, if you turn to Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68, you'll see that trial. And, and in it, we read about that the religious leaders were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Why? And in order to have grounds to put him to death. You'll read that Jesus was both silent, but then he spoke. Jesus knew when to speak and to when to refrain from speaking. 
And Peter, in his first letter, looks back at this and other instances in Jesus' life, and he said this, that we read in 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. My friends, Psalm 58 will help us grow in our understanding of and our love for him who judges justly. Psalm 58, if you'll notice, um, follows, of course, these other psalms that we've been looking at where it's early in the life of David. Um, the historical background is a bit vague. Um, most likely, this is composed maybe initially when David is on the run from King Saul. We, we remember that from some previous psalms. King Saul is not acting justly. It could be composed at a time when David was running from his son Absalom, a usurper to the throne. Absalom was not acting justly. Well, the good news about the uncertainty of the historical background means that we can map our circumstances and our life onto this psalm more easily. If it was so specific to David, maybe you and I wouldn't be able to identify with it as much. But for those of you that face injustice, which is all of us, this psalm is for us. Now, it's been a while since we were in an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm, whoa, what is that? It was all the way back to Psalm 35 that would be characterized in particular as an imprecatory psalm. Imprecation, a curse. You see, this psalm is a prayer for God's judgment on his enemies. An imprecatory psalm is a type of lament, and lament psalms are individual as well as corporate cries for relief. Many psalms, as we've been seeing, call on God for help as the faithful are threatened with harm from enemies. Now, these next four statements are super important. Enemies. I mean, we live in a day, right? Us, them. They're my friend, they're my enemy. But let's think about this. When in the Psalms, it speaks of enemies, it's not enemies over trivial matters. But it would be enemies who hate the faithful precisely because of their faith. And we will see today and in other Psalms that these curses are poetic in form and they can employ extravagant, vigorous language, hyperbolic language, over-the-top language, exaggeration that's, in, that's needed and necessary. And thirdly, these curses are expressions of moral indignation. They are not expressions of personal vengeance. And fourthly, remember the Old Testament ethical system forbids personal revenge. This psalm, as an imprecatory psalm, is a call for God's justice to be made known. It, it's going to display right and wrong, good and evil. And it sounds simplistic, but you know, sometimes we need to go back to the simple, don't we? 
good and evil need to be identified and dealt with. Right and wrong need to be identified and dealt with appropriately. You see, as we will see here in this psalm, praying for God to punish the wicked is neither unloving nor vindictive. But rather, this kind of prayer is an expression of faith in the one who judges justly. An imprecatory psalm like Psalm 58 is not a call to physical arms. It's not a call to get the latest and greatest knife or gun or club. It's a call to spiritual arms. It's a call for faith. And if you want to know what's in the spiritual armory, just open up Ephesians chapter 6. Read verses 10 through 20 once again. Psalm 58 is an incredibly contemporary psalm for us. It's relevant for us as a church. It's relevant for us as individual Christians. Now this is a song, as I've mentioned, that's not often sung, but one that at times is appropriate and necessary. It's a good thing that it's in our songbook. So let's listen to Psalm 58. I'll begin with the inscription, the title that was added at some point. To the choir master according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, May he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Now our approach to Psalm 58 will be to see it as a song of four stanzas. Let's unpack and explore this song by considering each stanza. The challenge, the charge, the curse, and the celebration. Again, the challenge, the charge, the curse, and the celebration. Now, I must admit that these headings are not original with me. Um, Several commentaries use these or similar words to outline the psalm, and I found them to be very helpful, and I hope they will be for you. So verses 1 and 2, the first stanza, the challenge to the tyrants. The challenge to the tyrants. Notice in in verse 1, the question is asked. Do you speak what is right? 
What is true? Do you judge uprightly? Do you judge justly? The question is asked. And without any delay, David, the psalmist, provides the answer in verse 2. No. No, you do not. Both your hearts, your attitude, and your hands, your actions, are corrupt. They are unjust. There is injustice. In particular, those who are called to administer justice are failing to do so. Instead of using their power to protect, instead of using power to do good, they're using power in a violent way, power to harm, to hurt. You just have to think about the Old Testament and God's instructions to the leaders of his people, indeed, to all his people. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice. To do justice. To act justly. But here, the answer is given. No. They're not doing justice. They're not acting justly. Both the outside is corrupt behavior and the inside is corrupt attitude now the psalmist will move from addressing the tyrants kind of like the writers of the declaration addressed the king of Great Britain as a tyrant David is addressing these whether it's King Saul whether it's his son Absalom whether it's some other leaders in Israel He's moving now from addressing them to portraying them, from challenging the tyrants to charging them. And so we see in this second stanza of the song, the charge against the tyrants. And we see that in verses three through five, the charge against the tyrants. The charge, we'll see, has to do with both character and conduct, because of course, character is reflected in conduct. Notice in verse three, We see that they are corrupt from birth, original sin. They are estranged from God from conception. And David says that about himself in Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful from birth from the time my mother conceived me. We'll see more of this in a few minutes. They are corrupt from birth. And notice how this corruption from birth is is in particular... Um, focused speaking lies speaking lies they they're corrupt from birth and in particular they have a corrupt tongue they go astray through lies and falsehood i think all of us um it's, it's good to, to, to say some things are more important than other things. And one of the skills a Christian needs to be able to do is to be able to distinguish between the major and the minor. To be able to distinguish between the either or and the both and. To be able to distinguish between what's a weightier matter of the law and what is a less weightier matter. But I want us to all, for the moment, turn over to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6. Um, 
You know, it's interesting, again, David focuses their corruption on the fact that they speak lies. Listen to Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16 through verse 20. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now that's an amazing list, isn't it? I mean, all of us would say, hands that shed innocent blood, an, an abomination. But guess what God also says? Hand, excuse me, lips that speak lies and falsehoods, an abomination. And guess what? God says it twice. You know, there's been an, an attack on truth through the years, right? Pilate to Jesus. What is truth? You know, today, one of the most successful strategies of the enemy is to cause us to believe that there really is no such thing as truth. So here, the corruption has to do with lies and falsehood. Judges, leaders that don't tell the truth. But not only are they having corrupted lips, notice they have corrupt ears. Verses 4 and 5, the end of verse 4, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. It's displaying both an inability and an unwillingness to hear any call to change, any call to be different. Interesting imagery. An, a, a, a stopping up of the ears. I've been told that a snake charmer, it's not the flute that the snake hears, it's the movement of the snake charmer that kind of mesmerizes the snake. This image is powerful. It's like, a, it's like kids, it's like a snake with noise-canceling earphones on. I hear no evil. I see no evil. I, I, I don't want to hear. And that's the image that David is portraying of these unjust, corrupt rulers. There's a movement now from the challenge to the charge, to the curse. Now we get to the imprecation itself. And that's the third stanza. The curse upon the tyrants, verses 6 through 9. In verse 6, we see, see what we see in many psalms, an appeal to God to intervene. Help, rescue me, save. It's not that, it's take care of these, destroy them, render them Unable to harm. It's a prayer that evildoers may no longer have the power to harm. It's graphic, almost savage imagery. And it 
catches us off guard. Off guard. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, oh Lord. Break the teeth. They're going to have a hard time speaking. They're going to have a hard time clamping down. If they're like young lions, meaning strong in their vigor of their youth, you remove their fangs. They're no longer threatening. One commentator says this, the glory of a psalm like this is its realism, its earthiness, its utter honesty about the horrors of life in this fallen world. The horrors, the difficulty, the frustration has driven the psalmist to say, God, break their teeth, defang them. Have we not had similar thoughts? Maybe not in that express image, but somehow. God, render them powerless. They are oppressing the poor. They are oppressing the weak. Render them powerless. But after this appeal, we now see a picture of the downfall and doom of the wicked. And we see that in verses 7 through 9. It's a prayer that evildoers should vanish, should dissolve, and should be swept away. And it's four pictures of coming to nothing imagery. Don't you love that expression? There's some kind of crisis, there's some kind of, some kind of situation, and it came to nothing. That's what we see here, water running off the surface of the ground and vanishing. A discharged arrow that that falls to the ground like a dead leaf. A snail that leaves its protective shell and dissolves. And in graphic language, it's a pregnancy that ends not in life, but in death. Verse 9 is a bit mysterious. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. In other words, it's possibly a proverb of suddenness. Without warning, God, do this. May it be sooner rather than later. Another commentator in looking at these verses says this. This is holy realism. It's like asking God to bankrupt the firms of armed dealers or to make terrorist bombs explode in the hands of those who make or set them. If people are irreversibly set in their ways and immune to appeal, nothing is left but to consign them to God the All-Holy. This prayer, this imprecatory prayer, this leveling of a curse, once again, is not taking personal revenge. You know, sometimes our public figures out there say, well, if I get hit, I'm going to hit back. If they do this to me, I'm going to do that to them. This is not about personal revenge. Rather, it's about waiting for the vengeance of God. Waiting for the vengeance of God. Kids, do you like to wait? Do you like to wait? All right, adults, do you like to wait? 
No, right. We want God to make it right, right now, right? The, the editor, by the way, in a Word document doesn't like make it right, right now. Delete repeated word. No, we want it to be made right, right now. I want to spend a few moments, because I think it's important, thinking about waiting for God Waiting for God's Vengeance. Um, In the book, The Reason for God, in a chapter entitled, How Can a Loving God Send People to Hell? In a section entitled, A God of Judgment Can't Be a God of Love, I want to read a few excerpts. The author, Timothy Keller, writes this. In Christianity, God is both a God of love and of justice. Many people struggle with this. They believe that a loving God can't be a judging God. He goes on to say, The Bible says that God's wrath flows from his love and delight in his creation. He is angry at evil and injustice because it is destroying its peace and integrity. He then writes this, Yale theologian Miroslav Volf, a Croatian who has seen the violence in the Balkans, Rights. And this is what Miroslav Volf says. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. The author, Keller, goes on to say, in this fascinating passage, Wolf reasons that it is the lack of belief in a God of vengeance that secretly nourishes violence. The human impulse to make perpetrators of violence pay for their crimes is almost an overwhelming one. And then he goes on to say this, Can our passion for justice be honored in a way that does not nurture our desire for blood vengeance? Wolf says the best resource for this is belief in the concept of God's divine justice. If I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and I will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I am sure that there's a God who rights all wrongs and settles all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain. The Bible clearly and everywhere speaks that God is a God of love and judgment and that God's justice will take care of man's injustice once And for all, that day is coming. Interestingly, a belief in divine vengeance enables us to be restrained in how we approach people, in how we approach situations. Well, thus far, the stanzas we've seen, the tyrants addressed, then described and prayed against. Now, finally, at their downfall, with the tyrants removed, there will be rejoicing. 
So let's look at the fourth stanza, the celebration by the righteous when God judges the tyrants. Psalm 58 ends with joy for the righteous. We see that in verse 10. Sooner or later, God will vindicate his justice in the world. These words of verse 10, he will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. That's a a metaphor for entering uh, the victory. Uh, In ancient Near East, when a one people knew that, that they had defeated the enemy, there would be lots of blood spilled. The enemy would be dead. So it's a vivid metaphor, a word picture. Sooner or later, God will vindicate his justice in the world and it'll be joy for the righteous. Notice, the righteous will rejoice when they take revenge. No, the righteous will rejoice when they take vengeance. No, the righteous will rejoice when they see the vengeance of God. Psalm 58 also ends with a public awareness of a just God, a public awareness that there is a God of justice. The scene now widens. Mankind will at last witness what the righteous have always known by faith. Once what was hidden will now be revealed. It will be brought out into the open. It's a foreshadowing of what is to come on the last day, the final judgment. Uh, The book of Revelation, if you turn to chapter 19, a rider on a white horse, you will see what will happen on judgment day. Here, the exactness of the execution of justice is is a potent influence, the psalmist is saying, upon society now. In other words, when When the evil gets what's coming to it, when the plans of the wicked fall back on themselves like Haman, that he was hanged on the gallows that he himself made for Mordecai. When when you see that kind of justice done, it gives people a glimpse that there is justice coming. That people will eventually reap what they sow. You know, the day is coming, but it's not here yet. And so waiting for God to act, waiting for verse 10 and 11 to be fulfilled fully and finally, it it takes patience on our part and it takes perseverance on our part. Waiting is both passive in a way, there's patience, it's also active, it's persevering. And that's why we need one another to encourage one another while we're waiting. Well, Psalm 58, like many psalms, moves from a cry of complaint to a cry of confidence. Psalm 58 helps all of us live in the midst of the tension between the longing for justice and the presence of injustice in the time between the already and the not yet You see, Psalm 58 helps us because Psalm 58 is both a mirror and a window. What do I mean? Look back with me at verses 3 through 5. It's not just a portrait of wicked tyrants, but it's a description of us. 
It's a mirror. Paul basically uses this in Romans 3, verses 10 and following to say, there is no one righteous, no, not one. My friends, whenever we confront a wrongdoer, no matter how evil, in many ways we are looking in a mirror. By nature, we all come under the condemnation of this psalm. There is no one righteous, no, not one. I'm sad to say that some of these verses describe me. And I would bet upon a bit of reflection they might describe you as well. So where is the hope If this psalm is a mirror that can only condemn us, where is the hope? You see, this psalm is not only a mirror, it's a window. And what do we see through this window? We see the Lord and we see our salvation. You see, we learn from Scripture that we are not righteous in and of ourselves. We are righteous rather because we are declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Only by grace can we find this psalm to be a source of joy. Only those people who have been declared righteous through faith in Christ and who are increasingly made righteous through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, only those kind of people can see this psalm and see it as joyful. Remember what the author to the Hebrews says, the letter to the Hebrews, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Look at the language of verse 11. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. A reward for the righteous. What is that? That we can then look down on other people, that we can get a life of comfort and ease. What is the reward for the righteous? What does it mean when we read that he rewards those who seek him? My friends, he rewards us with himself. What greater reward could there be than to be in an intimate, personal relationship with the one who made you and saves you? The one who you are going to be with forever and ever That's the reward. And remember that we don't war against evil with these literal swords, but we war against evil with the gospel by faith, especially the war that takes place in our own hearts where we, like the man, say, I believe, help my unbelief. Finally, friends, Remember where we began with this thought. Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Not like these unjust rulers that we read about in verse 1 and 2. Not entrusting ourselves to the mayor of Bellevue, the governor of Kentucky, the president of the United States, the secretary general of the United Nations, 
not to the some political party, not to we entrust Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You see, in the life and ministry of Jesus, we see the righteousness of God violated by sinful men, but we see the righteousness of God vindicated by the resurrection. My friends, as we deny ourselves, as we take up our crosses and follow Jesus, may we all entrust ourselves to the one and the only one who judges justly. We are safe and secure in him. Amen. Father, we thank you for Psalm 58. We wouldn't write it ourselves, but we are glad that it was written. For we must acknowledge that you are a God who is not like us. We thank you, Father, that you are a God in whom there is no shadow of turning, no sin or deceit, no corruption or injustice. Father, may we here at Grace and Peace be a people who more and more entrust our lives, not to our skills, our ability, our boldness, or our winsomeness. Help us to entrust ourselves into your strong and tender hands, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We respond in a similar manner to the